Hey there, welcome to Livewire. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. This week on the show, we are going to be talking to John Darneal. He's probably best known for being the lead singer of the band The Mountain Goats, but it turns out he's also a very talented novelist. In fact, he's a New York Times bestseller, and we're going to talk to him about his latest book, Devil House, and also his complicated relationship with the true crime genre, which Devil House sort of addresses. Then we're going to chat with the rapper and writer Dessa, who's going to tell us about the challenges of heading back out on tour after the lengthy pandemic, and also how she channels her passion for behavioral science into her amazing podcast called Deeply Human. She's one of those rappers who does a podcast about human behavior. Anyway, we've got a deeply interesting episode of Livewire for you this week, so don't go anywhere. It all gets started right after this. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Livewire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you can call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. How's it going? It's going great. I am really excited about this week's station location identification examination. You ready to play? Let's do it. This is, of course, where I quiz Elena on a place in the country where Livewire is on the radio. She's got to guess where I'm talking about. This city is the headquarters of Quick Trip, the regional gas and convenience stores. Hmm... We have them in Georgia. It's one of Tony P's favorite places on the planet. One of your dad's favorite yeah. places. Livewire supporter, Tony Passarello. Is it a southern a southern locale? We're going more Midwest. How about this? This city used to hold the Guinness World Record for most nightclubs and bars on one street. That's not going to help at all. Madison, Wisconsin? Wow, you're in the right state. Can you name another place in Wisconsin? Milwaukee, Wisconsin? How about La Crosse, Wisconsin, oh. <laughs> where we were on WLSU radio? Right. Yes, La Crosse, Wisconsin, <laughs> once the nightclub capital of America, maybe? I saw on a map once, like, the states with the most bars in it, and Wisconsin just crushed it. But I didn't know that La Crosse was particularly dense mm-hmm. in bar population. <laughs> Wisconsin often leads the nation in alcohol consumption per capita, and it sounds like La Crosse is really doing their part of the heavy lifting. So shout out to everybody tuning in on WLSU radio out there in lacrosse. All right, should we get to the show? Let's do it. All right, take it away. From PRX, it's... 
This week, author and musician John Darneal of the Mountain Goats. One of the things the book is about is myth-making, right? And the nature of, of the stories we hold is true. And rapper and podcast host, Dessa. You acclimate to outrageous conditions by virtue of the fact that you don't have the metabolic energy to maintain rage. <laughs> but you do at 13. <laughs> I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello, and now, the host of LiveWire, Luke Burbank! Thank you so much, Elena. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in from all over the country, including in beautiful La Crosse, Wisconsin. We do have a great show for you this week. Of course, we asked the listeners a question. We asked, what expertise would most people be surprised that you have? We have two guests this week who are both really good at kind of a lot of things. So we want to find out what our listeners are really good at. We're going to hear those responses in a minute. First, though, it's time for the best news we heard all week. This right here is our little reminder at the top of the show. There is some good news happening out there in the world. Elena, what's the best news you heard this week? Grocery news. <laughs> um, all right. I don't know. Are you familiar? I don't know if we have these out here in the Pacific Northwest with the grocery store chain known as Aldi or Aldi's. I've never been in one, but I feel like I've, I've driven past one or something. I think I thought it was a shoe store with a name like Aldi, but Aldi shoes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember Aldi from my time in Iowa. I, I think it might be kind of Midwestern. I'm not sure, but this is also a Midwestern story involving an Aldi, but in a very interesting way, they had a contest to see if anybody would be interested in getting married at Aldi. And it turns out that Aldi's two biggest fans, Michael Hurd and Jessica Bojanowski, uh, who are an affianced couple, very much wanted to get married in Aldi. They entered the contest and then in Batavia, Illinois, which I believe is their local uh, franchise of Aldi's, they tied the knot in November and Aldi took care of everything. And honestly, this wedding... I've seen worse. Like, I think it looks pretty, pretty good. <laughs> That's what you want to hear about your wedding. <laughs> I mean, I've I mean, seen worse. So the, the pictures are actually kind of lovely. And the story is lovely, too, because Michael and Jessica work. Uh, they've been together for a while and they work opposite hours during the week. Mm -hmm. So they don't see very much of each other. And sort of part of their couple ritual is a kind of leisurely trip to Aldi's every Saturday. So I think that's one of the reasons why it's so meaningful that they had their wedding there. And the pictures look great, honestly. The altar where they got married, they brought in those um, shelves of apples, you know, kind of like at a farmer's market in those big oh, right. boxes. And of course, this is in the fall, so a lot of great colorful apples. The aisle is the, the classic Aldi's rainbow, which is kind of part of their insignia. They had the reception over in the beer and wine aisle. <laughs> okay. They've sort of got everything you need, right, in a grocery store for your wedding. Yeah. I mean, you never have to, if you like, if if my, the thing that always happens to me when I go to weddings is my feet start hurting, just run over to the Band-Aid aisle and you're all uh -huh. set. Totally. Also, um, plenty of space for, I don't know, like the food table, which took the entire run of one of the checkout 
lanes, one of the conveyor belts, which I thought was pretty cute. Aldi made signature food for them. They made signature cocktails. They also had a wedding registry where they got a bunch of great stuff. And the wedding cake, instead of having a bride and groom on top of it, had a shopping cart on top of it. (laughs) Nice. Very on brand. (laughs) Yeah. It looks great. It looked really lovely. Now, you got married um, uh, secretly, which I'll never forgive you for, (laughs) by an Elvis impersonator. You and my mom. (laughs) Now that that you know getting married in an Aldi is possible, are you reconsidering your choice to get married by an Elvis impersonator? I would do a double, and I would do an Aldi with a different era of Elvis on every aisle. So it's like instead of clean up on L7, it's 68 comeback special on aisle 7, and then you have the Aloha from Hawaii in the fruit section, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think there's anybody uh, who knows more about Elvis right now than you, thanks to this book project that you've been doing. You're a font of knowledge of all things Elvis related. All right. The best news that I've seen this week, Elena, involves what they think might be the world's largest goldfish, carrot. I don't know if you're near a computer, but while we're chatting, see if you can Google carrot, the 67 and a half pound goldfish. Okay. That this British angler named Andy Hackett was able to catch. Now, he didn't catch this fish actually in the UK. It was in France, in the Blue Water Lakes district of Champagne, France. I'm seeing a look on your face, Elena, like you're looking now at a picture of Carrot the goldfish. Have you ever seen anything like it? How is that a goldfish? Is it just because it's the same color as a goldfish? It looks like a like a mackerel or like a whale or something. <laughs> it is actually a cross between a leather carp and a koi carp. But it looks to me like, I mean, just imagine like the goldfish that your kid brings home from school, like for the Christmas break, someone's got to watch the, the, the hamsters and the goldfish while everyone's on vacation. Just imagine that, but like, a million times bigger, and that is Carrot the Goldfish. He definitely needs both hands to hold this goldfish. It is a, you know, I I would have a hard time doing bicep curls with it. This goldfish is legendary, apparently, in this lake. This guy uh, who caught him said, I knew Carrot was out there, but I never thought I would catch them. I knew it was a big (laughs) fish when it took my bait and went off side to side and up and down with it. Like, I mean, how do you catch one of these goldfish? Do you just sprinkle some of that, like those flakes on top of the lake and they just like come up and like eat them. I don't know what the process is. <laughs> Sprinkle goldfish crackers. Yes, exactly. Uh, so a uh, carrot is, they think the largest goldfish, I mean, if we're going to call it a goldfish out in the uh, world at 67.4 pounds to be exact. Apparently a carrot is also very elusive for being a gargantuan goldfish. Carrot is pretty savvy and has been avoiding, like, people come to this lake to try to catch this particular goldfish. And I was reading this and looking at the picture of this guy, Andy Hackett, holding the goldfish, and I thought, it's kind of a shame because now the world's largest goldfish is going to be deceased. But it turns out, and this is why this is the best news I've heard this week, right after taking the picture, he gently put Carrot back into the lake. Yeah. So Carrot will live on and get to become even more rotund in its dotage. They don't say, I think, what the uh, gender of carrot is, so we'll just go with uh, nondescript. I think female, according to this thing that I just Googled on my phone, Fox News. Okay. Oh, great. Yeah, the place to turn for uh, large goldfish news. Anyway, the fact that uh, this guy got his uh, big prize, the goldfish, and the goldfish didn't have to uh, lose its life over the whole thing is 
the best news I heard all week. All right, let's welcome our first guest on over to the show. He's the founder and frontman of the band The Mountain Goats, who, uh, for those of you who might not know, they're an indie folk band. They've released 20 studio albums going all the way back to the early 90s. But he's also a New York Times bestselling author of three novels. The LA Times calls him a master at building suspense. His latest novel, Devil House, came out in January, and I was able to sit down with John Darneal at Town Hall in Seattle to talk about it. Take a listen. Uh, for folks who haven't had a chance to read the book yet, can you kind of lay out as much of the plot of Devil House as, as you feel comfortable with, or at least what's the arc of this, this book? It is uh, about a true crime author named Gage Chandler who has a, a method that involves inhabiting the property where the crime happened, right? And sort of, uh, it, it's like method acting where he, he, he scopes out the place and gets inside. And uh, his agent calls him and says, hey, there's a, a place where some crimes happen that's actually going for sale. It's in this little town called Milpitas, south of San Francisco. Um, so you go move in. So he does. The book is structured, it has a mirror structure. So parts one and seven involve that story. Parts two and six involve his first book, uh, The White Witch of Morro Bay. And uh, parts three and five are regard the book he's working on. And then part four is this separate freestanding thing about, uh, about castle doctrine. Yeah, part four is a real doozy. I guess that would be Middle English. What, what's well, the... I mean, it's 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 not real Middle English. Uh, it's uh, I do I do a pretty convincing Middle English. It, I was convinced reading it. So the book is going along kind of with sort of as one kind of prose, and then everything changes somewhere in the middle. The font, the yeah. style of 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 writing. I mean, it's why did you choose to do that? Um... Well, it, it, it has to do with some of the final reveals and with some plot points that I don't want to bear into, but one of the things the book is about is myth-making, right? And the nature of, of the stories we hold as true. And while I was studying it and studying this Castle Doctrine, which is this law that's, that's often used by NRA types to justify shooting people who are on their property, but it's a very old law uh, that that begins by saying, if you are in fact in the king's castle, the king can do whatever he likes to you. It's his castle, right? And so I started studying this stuff and discovered that the castle is actually a Norman import into England, right? But when I talk to you about King Arthur, you know King Arthur has to precede the Norman invasion. We know the stuff that happened after 1066, and we know that Arthur wasn't there. But if the castle comes with the French, where did Arthur live? Where were the Knights of the Round Table? They didn't have a castle, right? It's so, a very Mandela effect yeah, but, sort of moment, right? But they did have a castle because you can see that castle. It's I, called I can Camelot, picture it right, now. right? And so I'm really into that, right? That's that's kind of a, a vortex for me. And in the case of, of the house that Gage moves into, it was a castle for some people who lived there, right? Who had to defend it against interlopers at one point. And so so all that stuff is sort of addressed in a sort of um condensed way in the in the middle section. This is Livewire from PRX. We're listening to a conversation I had with the writer and musician John Darneal from The Mountain Goats about his latest book, Devil House. We've got to take a quick break. Don't go anywhere. Much more with John coming up in a minute. Hey, Elena. 
Hey, Luke, I didn't see you there. It's that time of year again. My seasonal allergies are back. Oh, congratulations. But also, it's our spring member drive, which is happening right now through May 17th. Oh, I like that much more than seasonal allergies. Yeah, if you are not yet a member of Livewire's League of Extraordinary Listeners, well, now is the time to do it. Why? Well, because this League of Extraordinary Listeners uh, is what keeps the lights on over at Livewire Inc., uh, which is definitely not the association that we are part of. I'm probably a 501c3. They don't let me near any of the paperwork mm -hmm. or bookkeeping, and it's really better that way. Yes. Point is, we... We are only able to keep doing this show because of support from our members, and we would love it if you could join us in that right now. Plus, there are all kinds of sweet perks, including uh, special discounted tickets to live recordings, on-air shout-outs, exclusive content. Uh, and, Elena, uh, one more thing that, of course, we would not be a self-respecting public radio show if we didn't offer this. If we didn't offer the most iconic public radio swag of all time, a tote bag. True iconic status. Yeah, but it's not just any tote bag. This is like a really good tote bag. It's got a second zipper, an internal zipper. Yes, whatever you want to put in the tote bag, that's your business, okay? What we're mm -hmm. here to talk about is you keeping Livewire going. So head on over to livewireradio.org to see the various member levels. It does not matter how much you are giving every month to Livewire. It just matters that you do it because it goes a long way for us. So thank you. Welcome back to Livewire. I'm your host, Luke Burbank, here with Elena Passarello. We are listening to a conversation I had with John Darneal of the Mountain Goats, recorded at Town Hall in Seattle, talking about his latest book, Devil House. Uh, I'm curious about what your relationship was with true crime before you started writing this book. I think uh, Kirkus uh, called the, this book an impressively meta work that delivers the pleasure of true crime while skewering it, which I, I think is an accurate description of what goes on in the book. Uh, was that something that you spent much time with uh, before you started on this project? Well, I, I, have, a, I, have, I have gothic bones, so, so it is the, the mission, not the mission, the duty of the young goth to indulge some true crime, you know. And, uh, and, but the thing is, when I was in my gothic days, which continue to this day, uh, uh, but in my more visibly gothic it's days. It's a state of mind. It doesn't yeah, have to be externalized yeah, with yeah, the no, outfit. That's right. You, you, you carry your, your goth with you. But, I mean, this is sort of what the book is about to some extent, or part of what it's about. is like when, when you're 18, 17, 18, 19 years old, um, you know, you hear about a serial killer named uh, Peter Curtin, the vampire of Dusseldorf, who asked his executioner if he'd be able to hear his blood rushing out of his neck for even a moment after he was beheaded, because to him that would be the greatest thing, right? You hear about this, you go, oh, I gotta know more about this guy, you know? And, uh, and as you grow, and especially if you become a parent, you start to think more about who these people killed, and, and yeah. what were they to those people, you know? And, uh, and it becomes a much more complicated question, but young goths, you know, tend to, they get excited that John Wayne Gacy paints clowns, you know? And uh, there's a band, everybody loves this band, Joy Division, right? Joy sure. Division is named after the uh, prostitution wing of a concentration camp. That's not funny, right? That's not a cool band name, actually. That's a really <laughs> thing to name your band, right? But in the late 70s, in the punk era, it was kind of you were trying to do something shocking. And, and if it was shocking and obscure, it was even better, right? But it is one of those things where you, you know, 
you, you reflect and you go, what, what effect does it have on people to be just sort of giving a pass to stuff like that over time? I think it has a deleterious effect, you know. But at the same time, I, I don't like to land on, and then you shouldn't be into it, you know. It doesn't, it doesn't do anything for me. Um, it does make you think, though, as the reader, about sort of, there's a big fascination these days with true crime, and I think it's a little different than the John Wayne Gacy stuff. I mean, I just saw a New Yorker cartoon this week where someone is going up to a DJ at a packed rave and asking them, do you have any true crime podcasts you can play? <laughs> That's, That's where we're at as a society. Like, we have a... There, you're right. There was the sort of goth fascination with the macabre. Now it's just moms... Who but, are coming home from Pilates listening to my favorite murderer. But that's who was going to Grand Guignol um, stuff in Paris. You know the Grand Guignol? No. Um, so where we get splatter movies from basically starts in 19th century Paris at a theater called the Grand Guignol where they did uh, these plays and the playwrights were sort of these young proto-decadence guys drinking absinthe and, uh, and being into Baudelaire and, and stuff like that. And the plays were very bloody. Like uh, people would pass out at the theater watching them. And this was like 19th century stagecraft stuff and 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 they were all like a lot of them were derived from uh from roman tragedy which is very different from greek tragedy um it's all the same basic stories but roman tragedy is gnarly and that stuff uh sort of is is the proto proto true crime thing i think it's like this because they were often presented and the same thing happens in pre Hayes code um mysteries and horror stuff they were presented as moral lessons like i'm showing you this in case you ever meet up with a guy who offers you soup and you don't know what's in it right <laughs> and and that's a pose right that's a that's a pose it's like no you're not you're showing me this cuz you think it's bitchin right <laughs> Did you have a hunch you were going to be good at writing novels? And I ask because you have written a ton of music. I don't know that I am either. Well, I, I, they've, they've all sold a lot and been well-reviewed, and there's a bunch of people here uh, who've read the uh, previous novels. I just I wonder about that because, you know, you've had a lot of success with music, but this is a sort of different thing. And, I mean, particularly with your first novel, I don't mean the 33 and a third book, which is great, but I mean yeah. the novel novel. Were you just kind of like, I hope I'm good at this? Yeah, well, a couple of things. It was like after I did the 33rd, that's when my agent um, made contact and said, I thought this was really good. If you ever work on anything else, if you want somebody to represent you, give me a holler. And, and I said, well, I actually did start working on something while I was waiting. This is how I work. Like when I'm waiting to get the edit back on whatever I just wrote, I start writing something else just to keep busy. And, uh, and so I had done that with what became the first six chapters, well, the original very different draft of Wolf and White Van. And then I just sort of let it sit because I was busy. I had other stuff to do, you know. And a few years later, he, um, he said, hey, if you have anything, you know, I'd love to show it around. I sent him six chapters and, and he said, you know, I can absolutely sell this. So he, so he did. But the thing is, I have an absolute horror of getting anything at all on the basis of being John Darnielle. You know what I mean? Like, last time I was in Seattle... Someone tried to pay for my dinner. Why should you pay for my dinner? You shouldn't pay for my dinner. I'm, I have a good job. Right? <laughs> if you like my music, you paid for my music. You sure don't owe me any dinner or drinks. I owe you dinner and drinks, you know. And so, so I and, and I, I, you know, I, I grew up in Southern California, and I know that celebrities like they stop paying for stuff. They just go in, and somebody wants to buy Tom Cruise a drink. Why? Why should he get a free drink? He has millions of dollars. <laughs> and uh, and so so when I go to write a book. I know that like I have an advantage that a writer who doesn't have a band that people like 
doesn't have, right? I'm 100% certain there's better writers than me out there banging their heads against the wall trying to get published, you know? But they don't, you know, when they present their stuff, even an editor might go, yeah, this is great. How am I gonna sell this? Who are you? What are you gonna do, right? Like 33 and a third, when you pitch one now, they ask you to include a marketing plan because it's hard to sell books, right? And so, but I have an absolute, like, I, I really, from the minute somebody asked me to write a book, I was like, I do not want one person to read this book and think, well, you know, see if they would have published this if you weren't that dude. What are you hoping folks get out of their experience reading Devil House? I mean, the answer for me always, first and foremost, with music and books is pleasure, right? It's like, I hope they have a good time reading it, right? I don't, I'm not didactic. Like, there is nothing worse than the just asking questions guy, but on the broader scale, I mean, that is what I write to pose, to, get, to let questions out into the air. I don't write to teach. Uh, it seems that a, a theme of this book is question of sort of who gets to tell stories mm-hmm. about real people. That's right. And, and I wonder, you know, with your songs, if you're telling stories about real people and if, if some of that thought about this stuff in the book also applies to the musical process as far as, do you ever feel bad? Do you ever put a real person in a scenario in your song and then you, you sort of regret it? Yes, I have. <laughs> Somebody I was having an affair with who, uh, before I got married, uh, but uh, who said, you know, that song is just straight narrative. And I was like, <laughs> no one's going to know, right? And then, and no one does, <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, uh, but yeah, no, I, I used to do that a lot, actually. Um, uh, but it was usually a, as a wink to somebody, to the only other person who would know, right? Um, and, and that's a little different, and it was all really heavily cloaked, you know. Uh, whereas I think when you're telling a story, I mean, look, if you're sleeping with somebody you're not supposed to be sleeping with, and you tell that story in some you know, Romana Clef sort of style, it doesn't matter. Nobody cares about your affair. It doesn't actually matter, right? But if you're telling a story where people actually got hurt, where people died, people's lives changed, right, in a really important way, uh, then I think the, the duty to think about what the effect of telling that story on others and letting it out into the world is going to be is an important question, right? I don't think, emphatically don't think, that that leads to any simple, and then you shouldn't, right? Or then only the following people should do that. I don't think it's like that. Um, but I think what it should do is inform your practice, right? So, Has that practice evolved for you of writing songs because of those experiences? Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, a, a lot. I mean, this, the stuff I'm interested in writing about has changed over the years. Yeah, I mean, I just follow my, my heart on that, but it's like that's not, you know, I mean... I'm a middle-aged father of two now, and I'm not having any affairs. <laughs> but I don't have that stuff to draw on now. <laughs> so I suppose if I was out there doing that, I would probably want to do that still. Uh, you know, but, uh, but yeah, it was, a, it was a different me who was doing that. I know you're, you're somebody who, you know, you study literature in, in college. You obviously read uh, widely. Yeah. <laughs> Do you feel like that is what's helped you be a good writer of novels is, is just all of the other stuff that you've consumed? I think um, if I'm a good writer, it's because I am in awe of great writers, and that's who I mainly glut myself on. I mean, not glut, I actually, I doled them out sparingly, which at my age I now start to go, you should stop being so sparing with the ones you think are the best ones and read them before you die. <laughs> and so, But uh, when I'm reading 
great stuff. I mean, I want to do that, and I also know that I can't, but I sort of really, really have a strong desire to be able to stand next to the writers that I worship, you know, the ones that I just think are, are, you know, unimpeachably great. So if you pair that with the, with the fact that I also really believe that my neck of the woods is to entertain, right, you know, the stuff I read, a lot of stuff, would not be entertaining to a lot of people, right? Um, it's entertaining to people who like literary fiction, right? Um, but when I do my stuff, I want it to have that, but also be something you can read on an airplane, you know, uh, that you can read on an airplane if you're not me. <laughs> so uh, so the, there, there's a sort of a, there's a hierarchical thing that I feel. I, I like to be a disciple, right? I like to, I like to, to stand in, beneath somebody and aspire to their condition. John Darnell, everyone. The book is Devil House. Thank you for coming out. Thanks, John. That was John Darnell, recorded at Town Hall in Seattle. John's latest book, Devil House, is available now. And also his band, The Mountain Goats, are out on tour. So check them out in a town near you. Hey, special thanks this episode to William and Kathleen Lockwood of Vancouver, Washington. William and Kathleen are part of the Livewire member community and generously support our show with a donation each month. And we are very thankful for that support because it's genuinely what allows us to keep this whole thing going. So a big thanks to William and Kathleen for their support. This is Livewire from PRX. Of course, each week, we ask our listeners a question. This week, we've got two multi-talented, multi-hyphenate guests on the show. So we wanted to find out from our listeners, what expertise would most people be surprised that you have? Elena has been collecting those responses. What do you see? Oh, listen to this one from Tracy. Tracy's expertise is, I have an uncanny ability to recommend the best restaurant or bar for any occasion. Oh. Such a good skill. That is amazing. I have whatever the opposite of that is. The wor- You can find the worst place to go. In any- I always <laughs> manage to find the worst place to go. You're just always at Quiznos. <laughs> like, I'm overwhelmed. <laughs> I have real, you know, decision paralysis because, you know, I live in Portland and there are just so many great places to go. And I'll just like, I'll just sort of stare at the list of places and then just, yeah, end up ordering, a, you know, a pizza delivery or something. Same. Yeah. Or I'll just like, like, just I'll get so stressed out that I'm not even hungry anymore. <laughs> I wish I, I wish my stress manifested like that. I think I've got the, I get the stress munchies. Uh, what's something else that uh, one of our listeners can do that people might be surprised by? Oh, this is, this is good for you. Maybe you need some help from the expertise of Sumaya, who says, I can always de-stress a situation. So when you're trying to figure out what restaurant to go to and you get the stress munchies, then you can call Tracy and get uh, a great restaurant rec. Can we set up a service, Sumaya? Can you like uh, text the show or something? I'm going to need to call you next time I'm in a pickle. Um, <laughs> one more uh, secret talent of one of our listeners. Oh, I love this one from Verna. Verna's expertise is in other people's relationship problems. <laughs> <laughs> Why is it so much easier to diagnose what other people should do in there? It's like, remember being a kid and you'd be at your friend's house and you'd be washing the dishes after dinner and it just wasn't nearly as annoying as washing your own dishes. 
at your actual house. Did you ever have that experience? Uh, I thought you were going to say that um, while you were washing dishes, you listened to your friend's parents fight and you could easily (laughs) solve their relationship problems. But no, it's just that you were very happy to help. Somehow dealing with other people's stuff is just kind of less annoying than dealing with your own stuff. That's true. Yeah, there's no resistance when you're a guest in someone's home to just like get up and do the dishes. But in your own home, it just feels like this Herculean labor. Exactly. Or like if, you know, someone else's relationship is falling apart. I feel like I have lots of great. I'm the Tracy of I'm sort of like that listener. I'm the Tracy of recommendations. I can recommend all kinds of things for these people to do, none of which I can implement in my own life. (laughs) All right. Thank you so much to everyone who sent in those responses. Uh, We have another listener question for next week's show, which we will reveal at the end of this program. So stick around for that. You're listening to Livewire Radio. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. Our musical guest this week is a singer, rapper, writer, and speaker who has made a career out of blending genres and defying expectations. She's performed at Lollapalooza and Glastonbury. Her track, Congratulations, from the Hamilton Mixtape, has over 17 million streams. She's also the host of the fascinating podcast, Deeply Human. She joined us at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. This is Dessa performing her song, Jump Rope. Black turn rope calling out the same games that I played. It goes turn around and jump, touch the ground and jump. Wake up to find work and look for love, but when that rope comes round, you jump. That rope comes round, you jump, 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 jump. You sterilize the needle with a lighter and a prayer. So your empty pockets close, cut off all your hair. You train up on the mountaintop to weaponize the blood. You bring your body back to sea level to see what body does, does. And it runs, and it runs, and it runs. It was just jump broken. You try not to get hit. You try to stay in, don't let them talk that down. It's still jump broken. It was just jump problem. You try not to get it. You try to stay in. Don't let them talk that down. It's still jump problem. You hope you get the fast or some of what you ask for. Never let a broken heart keep you from the dance floor. Have a little fun. Have a little fun, fun, fun.
not to get hit You try to stay in the let them talk that now It's still job That was great. Woo! How long have you been back doing live music in a live space with Man. people watching? With humans, with human yeah. people? I mean, I think, like a lot of folks, we probably made a lot of false starts. You know, it was like, let's rebook the tour, psych! Yeah. <laughs> let's rebook the psych! You know? But, um, but now for a few months, we've had most of our shows go. So every once in a while, if there's a spike, you know, we'll call something off. But yeah, we've been back at it now for a few months. And yeah. when you got like back doing it for the first time, did it feel natural and familiar? Was there rust? Like, what was it like getting back <laughs> into that mode of performance? Um, I th remember that I was like in my early twenties. I had a car, um, and I had never opened the hood, and I lived in <laughs> Minnesota. And the way that like a calcification will build up on a car battery is a remarkable thing. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like underwater. Yeah, it's like white and green and colors you didn't know were inside your car. There was a little bit of that first day back. I remember like, you know, I was on stage with, with Aviva J and Joshua, uh -huh. who we just heard, and and it was like one of us couldn't remember which direction upstage meant. And then the other <laughs> two couldn't either. <laughs> yeah. Did it come back pretty quickly after you remembered what upstage meant? We're still working. No, yeah, it did. I mean, it, it's, it's, it feels great now. It really does, yeah. Um, this tour that you're on is called the IDES Project Tour. And uh, can you remind us, you were on a while ago on Livewire talking about the IDES Project, but what was that exactly? Yeah, so it was kind of like depths of the pandemic, trying to figure out how to make and release art, when a lot of like the systems that one would normally adhere to didn't make sense. The templates, you know, you could essentially light them on fire and throw them into the snow. And that, you know, usually a musician will make a bunch of songs, you go into a studio, you record them, and you run around until people don't want to hear them anymore, and then you repeat the rinse and repeat, you know? <laughs> um, but there was no running around to record, obviously. And I was really aware of the fact that, like, I was having deep emotional connections to fake people on Netflix series because... I believe I, those are parasocial relationships, they call them. Yes, they do. <laughs> <laughs> you just call them Roy Kent fake boyfriend, you know, whatever. Uh, but. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you were developing a strong connection to Roy Kent in, during yes. the pandemic, and, and, and how did that cause you to want to do this regular sort of practice of this IDES project? I liked the fact that you know, at night or whatever, before going to bed, that I could return to these series. There was always more to be had, you know? It was just, and it was such a winter, it was the worst, and I was like, I would like to release music in that format where after you consume some of it, you know, you hear a new song, you know that there's more to look forward to. And so instead mm -hmm. of releasing a record, I decided to do this kind of like intermittent single project, which isn't something that I'd done before because I liked the idea of something on the horizon when it felt like so much was underground. Mm -hmm. This is Live Wire Radio. We're talking to... Dessa, were you releasing the tracks on the 15th of every month? Was that? I was. <laughs> I'm yeah. trying to remember because I know we chatted about this at some point. But mm. I guess my question is, 
what was happening when it was like the twelfth, and maybe it, you weren't <laughs> feeling inspired? Like, I'm interested in this approach to creativity yeah. of. You know, they say with Saturday Night Live, like, they do the show not because it's ready, but because it's 11 p.m. on yes. a Saturday. Like, yeah. did it help your creativity? Yeah. I mean, I think in some way, you know, I've always been sort of... De- I, I, I think left to my own devices, I can be kind of precious about stuff. Mm. You know, like, I can really make that last 5% of a process. Mm. You know, make that last hmm. for years. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and so, yeah, just having a strict deadline, I think, in the context in which we were all living, where everybody knew, like, yo... This isn't going to be perfect because you can't go into a mix studio. You mm-hmm. can't. I do feel like it actually ended up. Um, I don't know. It felt like training with you know with a parachute running around. Is that still something that runners do? I don't know. But yeah, <laughs> sure. But yeah. So every every month, um, you know, I, to be honest, it was just trying to name the series in a way that would help people remember when it was coming out. Uh-huh. And so it was like, what's one word that everybody knows? Ides. And then everyone was like, Ides. And I realized I had picked the wrong <laughs> word. <laughs> How many Ides did you do? How many months worth of Ides? Nice round seven. Uh-huh, <laughs> sure. One of those was the song Terry Gross, yes. which you performed on the show, which was amazing and was getting a lot of attention. Why Terry Gross and why not Lakshmi Singh? <laughs> Lakshmi Singh doesn't rhyme with a lot, man. I see. You know, um, I, Terry Gross, I've just, I think she's, I think she's boss. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No shade, Lakshmi. You know, sure. But, yeah. Also, boss. Also, double boss. Yeah, yeah. but mm. have you? Okay, so you also you host a podcast, Deeply Human, about to start the second season. Did you have you picked up some hosting techniques from Terry Gross? I like the fact that Terry Gross seems to be interested in having a conversation, and that she's not afraid to say what I don't know what that means, or like, mm. are you serious? You know, she just like. She doesn't seem like she has to be in the driver's seat and the burden of like omniscience isn't one that she's decided to pick up. I like that she sounds really human. So do you try to bring that to your hosting? Because you, I mean, you have this great show where you're talking about kind of behavioral science, but you're trying to get into it in a, as the name would indicate, very human way. There's been a lot of times, like, because you have to, well, I have to like listen back to my own audio and... <laughs> I can hear the moment where I try to be Terry Gross, and then I am like a lesser Terry Gross in part, some moments. Is that the part where Dave Davies shows up for you? <laughs> oh! Boop, Shots fired! Don't cut all that out. But we know. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, and also, I mean, gosh, Terry Gross has the added benefit of being Terry Gross. So I feel like when Terry Gross doesn't know something, it sounds like humble and mm-hmm. and charming. Whereas if like random lady off the street who's talking to a neuroscientist is like, oh, dude, I've never heard that word before. It's not as charming. Right. So I feel like I have to know everything until I have the name recognition and then I'm allowed to become ignorant. Right. <laughs> I am. Um, can we, can we have like a, a moment here where I remove the fourth wall and become vulnerable in front of everybody? My bracelets are locked together. And I oh can't. my God. <laughs> Thank you. Can we, can we add... That costs extra. Can we add escapist to your long <laughs> resume? Later on in the show, we're going to lower you into a tank of water upside down. <laughs> See if you can make your way out. Um... 
the second season of Deeply Human is coming up. What kind of uh, stuff do you get into and explore? So I got to try like an alcohol alternative that's supposed to, you know, kind of gently intoxicate by acting on the GABA receptors in your brain, but it doesn't have like a hangover or results in the kind of like tissue inflammation. That was exciting. And um, we talk about accents. I'm a language fiend and I think a lot of us are charmed. You know, if you have a friend who can just like slay accents. I mean, that person just wins the party. Yes. Yeah. Or like, if you're me, every accent I do ends up sounding like Bill Clinton. Oh. It's terrible. It is terrible. (laughs) It just starts off with me trying to do like an Irish person and then pretty soon it's just like, hey, how's it going? (laughs) Like it just, it it is a one-way street to Clinton town. Yeah. Which is the opposite of slaying it that's, at the party. That's a cul-de-sac, <laughs> my guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's Dessa right here on Livewire. I'm Luke Burbank with Elena Passarello. we got to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere. More Livewire with Dessa in a moment. Livewire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal T this season, Formerly known as Tea Chai Tay, Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest. They make one-of-a-kind handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream Earl Grey. Use the code LIVEWIRE, all lowercase, for 20% off at portaltea.co. Welcome back to Livewire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. We're listening to a conversation we had with the rapper, writer, and podcast host, Dessa, at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. Take a listen. You gave this TED Talk, Can We Choose to Fall Out of Love? It's got like over 4 million views. What were you exploring with that TED Talk? I was trying to fall out of love, man. Really? 100%. Yes. I'd been in love with the same dude for like, I don't know, eight times as long as would have been helpful for anybody involved, you know? And it just became sort of like an embarrassing thing. Like braces, those are fine to have for a while, but you don't want to die with braces. <laughs> right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I had been in love for just a, way too long. And so um, after waiting for three years and then five years and then 10 years and then 12, you know, a long time, um, I was like, man, what if I just tried to tackle this as you would any other problem? You know, you just put your hands on your hips and put your safety goggles on and work it out. And so... <laughs> I ended up like asking a few, a couple of neuroscientists if they'd be game to try a particular experimental protocol to see if we might be able to make some headway that way. Wow. Uh, do you want to talk about how that went or is that spoiling the TED Talk for people? <laughs> um, I would say that you can sort of fall out of love medium, you know? But yeah, I, I mean, the, I guess the happy story is like, I'm not in love with the dude anymore. I would need you to applaud at this point. <laughs> Um, but also it was just like, it was such an exciting project. By the way, he's here tonight. (laughs) Jason, come on down. (laughs) Um, We told you we had a surprise, Des. (laughs) Okay. Um, 
but also it was just like, I don't know, it was one of the most exciting projects of my life. I remember standing at the kitchen, in my kitchen, like in my apartment, and reading something that I was really excited. I was reading about uh, the, the brain of a dead Parisian woman who is anonymous in the scientific literature. It was her brain which was used to create some of the atlases. So essentially it's like the way that we know what's in your head or in my head, like how far in to sink a needle before we get to a particular region was based on this one brain, at least in the beginning. And I got so excited as I was researching this that I felt like I was going to vomit. And so I was like holding the edge of the sink. It was just one of the most rewarding like intellectual ventures that I'd had. And in some way, it's like loving that work enough, I mm. think, gave me something else to love, too. You know? Gotcha. All right. <laughs> Let's talk about this. Dessa, besides your musical accomplishments, you are also, as we've now been exploring... Uh, the host of this podcast, Deeply Human. It takes a very personal look at neuroscience and behavioral science and things like that. As such, we were hoping we could take a moment to pick your deeply human brain and get some insights from your life. Uh, so here on the table, we have an actual physical jar. It's got five questions in it based on some of the topics from episodes of your podcast. We call this the Deeply Human Jar of Truth. Yes. Thank you. Here's how this is going to work, Dessa. You will grab a question at random from the Jar of Truth. Elena Passarello will read it to you, and then we will uh, get your answer. Okay, so in your episode, The Teenage Brain, you explore why adolescence is so weird. That means we want to know, what did you believe as a teenager that you don't believe anymore? Oof, God, oh man, oh man. Um, (laughs) I imagined that... Walking in high heels was something that would happen naturally to you. That, that at one point in your life, you'd be able to do it. Yeah, that it was just like a, a state of mastery. You get breasts. You move out of your house. You can magically walk in high heels. Yeah. You know what I mean? Licensure. And, and it doesn't, that didn't happen. But I would also say, at the risk of being totally maudlin, um, that yes, of course, there's some things that I would like, that I think differently about now. But I think that there were some things that she was right about, that I've gotten too tired to police the same way that I used to. Like, she was right this place is insane and not fair. <laughs> and I So young Dessa was actually right about a few things. What I saying. think so. And it's just like you get you acclimate. Mm-hmm. You acclimate to outrageous conditions by mm-hmm. virtue of the fact that you don't have the metabolic energy to maintain rage. <laughs> but you do at 13, you know. So Yep. Yeah. Okay, in the episode Spooked, you investigate some of the most mystical, disorienting, and disturbing experiences that a person can have. So we want to know, what is something that scares you way more than it should? Oh, something that scares me way more than it should. Okay, there is a turn in that question, because I was ready with the answer, having a nosebleed on mushrooms, but that's not the way that the question ended. Well, what, well hold yeah. on. Wait. Well, hold, now, hold on. <laughs> no, you know, no, no. First, you... first thought, best thought. <laughs> Y'all had what your question, chance. What question is the answer had a nosebleed on mushrooms? What question isn't that the answer? To- yeah, <laughs> um, amen. 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 Yeah. What scares me? I, I, would, I will say that I think, like, I've known that I've, I am high strung for a long time. Mm-hmm. I am only fully appreciating, like, how high above concert A I am wired. <laughs> the amount of, like, rumination that's expended on, like, really minor social things um, mm. is 
surprising. And, you know, just like the, the thing where you like replay the thing that you said the night before. I yeah. think now that I'm adult and I've had a chance to like trade notes with other people. Mm-hmm. I'm scared of that. I'm yeah. scared of, of even like minor slights to other people really genuinely freak me out in a way that intellectually I know is entirely out of proportion. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if you had come to any kind of insight on that because I think one of the key requirements of being a public radio listener is also having intrusive thoughts. So I feel like the people hearing this can relate to sort of rumination and intrusive thoughts. And if you, in all of your sort of neurological research or lived experience, if you had arrived at something that helped quiet those voices, I bet you there's some people right now who would love to hear about that. I mean, I do enjoy whiskey. You know, like that that quiets it right down for a little while. Sometimes with pride. But okay, like example. So I'm on tour with two musicians who are like close friends of mine. Aviva plays harp and sings. We share a room together. And today, I can hear her laughing, and I'm already worried that this isn't going to play well. Today, when we were coming here, she was reading a book, and I didn't want to interrupt Aviva, and I went in my makeup bag. She has a little canister of, like, face cream, and it was in my makeup bag. I have spent the past three hours wondering, did she put it in there, or did I put it in there and take it? Is it a gift, and should I say thank you, or did I accidentally take her stuff? Aviva, could you just say yes or no? You didn't? Oh my God. You stole it. (laughs) I'm so sorry. Put the cuffs back on her. (laughs) Sorry, Viva. Dessa, everyone, right here on Livewire. That was Dessa right here on Livewire. The latest season of Deeply Human is available now, and you can visit Dessa Wander. That's D-E-S-S-A, wander.com for upcoming events. All right, before we get out of here, a little preview of next week's episode. Uh, We'll be talking to writer and podcaster Nora McInerney about her latest book, Bad Vibes Only. It's a collection of essays that challenges uh, what Nora calls society's oppressive optimism, sort of live, laugh, loveification of everything. Then we're also going to talk to author and music entrepreneur Nabil Ayers about his memoir, My Life in the Sunshine, which explores his relationship with his father, the musician Roy Ayers. Also, we're going to hear music from the very talented Madison Cunningham, the now twice Grammy-nominated recently Madison Cunningham. And as always, we're going to be looking to get your answers to our listener question. Elena, what are we asking the listeners for next week's show? We want to know what small thing are you too hard on yourself about? I know the grammar of that is killing you as an English professor, but just <laughs> we're just going to go with it. If you want to tell us about a small thing that you are too hard on yourself about, go ahead and hit us up on Twitter or Facebook. We are at LiveWire Radio. All right, that's going to do it for this episode of LiveWire. Huge thanks to our guests, John Darneal and Dessa. Dessa's band, by the way, is Joshua Holmgren and Aviva J. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Special thanks to Ware Harmon, Becky Hoffman, Stephanie Weil, Stephen Weil, Candice Wilkinson Davis, and all the other fine folks over at Town Hall in Seattle. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko. Our assistant editor is Trey Hester. Our marketing manager is Paige Thomas. And our production fellow is Tanvi Kumar. Our house band is Ethan Fox Tucker, Sam Tucker, Zach Domer, a.k.a. Pony, A.L. Alves, and A. Walker Spring, who also composes our music. Molly Pettit is our technical director and mixer, and our house sound is by D. Neil Blake. Additional funding provided by the Marie Lamp from Charitable Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, 
We'd like to thank members William and Kathleen Lockwood of Vancouver, Washington. For more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast, head on over to LiveWireRadio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole LiveWire team. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of LiveWire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the LiveWire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are LiveWire subscribed. And if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about LiveWire. And thank you.